looking at today, if, if you have an overview for today, it's that we live in preparation of Jesus' return by hearing and obeying. We live in preparation of Jesus' return by hearing him now and obeying him now here in this earth. And specifically, um, two th- ways that we that the Lord will have us hear him and obey him, two kind of general categories, I guess, of how he will lead us, what we will give our lives to obeying him in is number one is serving people. And then related to that is number two, building the church, serving people, serving the needs, loving people, meeting needs, caring about people, however you want to say that. And then secondly is there's only one thing that Jesus says in all of the New Testament that he's actually building, and it's his church. And if we abide in him, he will inevitably be using our lives in the context of that which is he's building, which is his church, which is simply other people who are also following him and reaching those who aren't yet following him, which we will uh, get into. So uh, if you can turn with me to Luke chapter 17, like I said, we're going to start towards the end of the chapter. And the first point that I want to make here is that we live in preparation of Jesus's return by hearing and obeying him now. So what we're going to do is look at verses 22 through 27. I'll start now in, in verse 22. It says, Then he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. So we, we have uh, one in the congregation who seems a little offended, perhaps, uh, this morning. Uh, So I'm not sure if you heard the scripture that I just read. I'm just going to read that one verse again. Then he said to his disciples, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Now, the interesting thing about this uh, verse, this comment that he just made, is that here's Jesus talking now to his disciples, not the Pharisees and Sadducees. And he's saying that there's going to come a day when they will desire to see him physically again, in the same way that he was seen physically when he was walking the earth. Now, the kind of um, surprising element of that is that he is alluding to a day when he will have been resurrected and ascended and will no longer be in the earth. And he's talking to his disciples saying that they are going to long for him to physically be present with them again. And the irony there is that one would expect, knowing what the, the season after his resurrection and ascension would be, that disciples will now not just have Jesus with them, with them, around them, they'll have Jesus living inside of them through the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that it would be expedient that he would go, you remember, so that he could send the Holy Spirit. And he also said that the Spirit of God is with them when he was physically speaking to them and will be in you. You remember that, maybe, some of you do, the end of, the end of John. So the idea is that when Jesus leaves, He's going to be dwelling inside, and one would think that's way better than having Jesus' physical body in my presence, to have him inside me by the Spirit. And yet, there is clearly, here's Jesus saying, the days will come when you will desire to see the, the, the one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. He's basically saying, there is going to, even with me dwelling inside of you by the Spirit, you're still going to long for what you're experiencing right now. What's the whole point of uh, kind of emphasizing this is that the spirit that's been given to every believer who has placed their faith in Jesus, they've received what, the, what Ephesians calls is the earnest of their salvation, the earnest of their redemption. Uh, Bob and I who work in real estate know clearly what that means, the earnest. When you buy a house, you've got to put earnest money down, not the down payment. You've got to put skin in the game. You've got to say, I'm offering you 200000 and here's $2,000 right here, right now, to say, here's skin in the game right now. Give me 30 days, and I'll close this out and buy your house, right? And, and the, the Lord has given us his spirit as an earnest of our redemption. In other words, we will know the fullness one day. Right now, we have that skin in the game given to us called the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. In other words, it is ultimately the, the consummation of the purpose of God will be the church, the bride of Christ being reunited physically in the presence of, physical presence of, the the Son of God. And so he's saying there's this thing inside of you where you're going to wish 
even though I dwell inside of you, you're still going to wish that I was physically with you because ultimately that is the right desire. Every believer has, has something of a yearning to be one with the Lord fully, to have all this crud out of the way once and for all, all the sin, all the deception, all the evil, and for us to be fully reunited with the Lord physically in his presence. And that's what Jesus is referring to here. If you go on with me to verse 23, and they will say to you, look here or look there, do not go after them or follow them. What's he talking about? He's talking about people saying, with this longing of Jesus to return, some are going to say, oh, there's the Christ. He's returned or he's over there. And he's saying, don't follow them. Why? For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the under, other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. What he's saying is that moment that he returns, there will not be any need for any man or woman to tell you that he's come back. As much as everybody on the land sees lightning flash across the sky, it will be that obvious. When he comes, everyone will know. And he says in verse 25, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So now he's going back and talking about his time in that moment right there. I've got to be rejected before any of that stuff happens. I've got to go through some stuff. We know what he went through, uh, the cross. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. A haunting comment there from Jesus. The picture that he gives there. That in that day, there was a man named Noah, and the Bible says that the water had not come upon the earth yet. It was watered by another means. It hadn't, it, rain hadn't come upon the earth yet. And here's this cuckoo dude called Noah building an enormous structure in preparation for the flood that was to come. Now, if you saw Noah, and he was neighbor in your neighborhood, what would you think about Noah? Have you looked at the dimensions of this ark, mind you? This thing was ginormous. It would have taken years and years to build. Can you imagine after a few months, after a full year? Noah, dude, are you, there's not a flood coming after two years. Do you follow what I'm saying? Noah was building an ark while everybody else was, as according to what Jesus said, giving in marriage, eating, drinking, going about with normal life. Jesus says that is the way it's, it is. With his return, people will be going on with normal life. And the church is in jeopardy of also going about with normal life as opposed to doing what Noah was doing, having heard the Lord and was obeying against all culture and all normal normalcy, doing something that the Lord had called them to do, looking like an idiot until the day that Noah went into the ark and the floods came and destroyed them all. So it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Judgment is coming upon sin in the earth. And those who are, are bound together with sin are judged with it. And all of us are going to face the judgment of God in the sense that we will give an account to the judge. But those who have placed their faith in Jesus will be reunited with him forever and ever. I don't want to go into that because that's not the text that we're looking at. My point is that we live in this earth in preparation for that day. That day puts every single minute of our earthly life in the context. One day, that moment of facing Jesus will have been all that mattered. How can we be best prepared for that moment? Just like Noah, now hearing him and building. What I'm wanting to say here, can I say it another way? Noah was not prepared for that day by going to church. Noah was not prepared for that day by claiming to be a Christian or even being a Christian. Not that there was such a thing anyway, or church for that matter. You follow what I'm saying. Noah wasn't prepared for that day by praying. Noah wasn't prepared for that day by reading his Bible. Noah was... Not prepared for that day by avoiding certain sins. I'm not advocating doing sins, but I'm saying avoiding sins is not preparing for the return of Jesus. Noah was prepared because he heard him and against all rationale obeyed Jesus in his day.
And so just as God gave Noah instructions to build an ark, and that ark was actually for the salvation of anyone else who would believe, God gives instructions to us to build his church. And one day his church will be manifest as the ark of salvation given to all mankind as what was offered as the harbor for, man, for, for mankind to come into. That is what God is building. As much as Noah built an ark, we are building the work and kingdom and church of God. So while the rest of the world today, the world that surrounds you and me, our neighborhood, our coworkers, our the, the, the culture around us, while the rest of the world continues in life as normal, the preparing believer is faithful to God by hearing his instructions and doing them, even if they're completely countercultural. So our ark, I believe, is two parts that I said earlier. Lo- living to serve others and... You flip with me, back with me to Luke chapter 16. We're going to look at a, a man named Lazarus. Not to be confused with the Lazarus who was raised from the dead in John chapter something. Luke chapter 16, we're going to read verses um, 19 through 31. And the idea here is that we live to serve others instead of seeking our own comfort. So let's start in verse 19. It says, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. This means this dude was doing well financially and in terms of lifestyle. But there was a certain beggar full of sores who was laid at his gate, who was at the rich man's gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked the sores. That's where that is. Uh, the, moreover, the dog. Okay. <laughs> Okay, inside joke, maybe I'll tell you later. Oh, that's funny. Anyways, uh, the, moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So here, what do we know so far about the main characters of the story? Firstly, we know that the name of the man of earthly power, power was forgotten. He's a certain rich man. Meanwhile, the, the Lazarus is remembered by Jesus by name. Another thing that we know so far is that the rich man knew great privilege in his life, whereas Lazarus knew great suffering. We also know that Lazarus was begging, and therefore his need was known. It was seen by the rich man. He was begging at the rich man's gate. And perhaps most importantly, we know that Lazarus was in regular proximity to the rich man. He was at his gate. So pick up in verse 22. It was, just remember that, that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's booth. The rich man also died. That's another juxtaposition. would much rather be the one carried by angels to Abraham's bosom than just simply be died, die and buried. In torments in Hades, eyes and saw and Cried and said, that He made the of his finger, pull my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Abraham said, Son, remember, in your lifetime you received your good things, Lazarus, evil things, but now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between there is a great goal fixed. Not, nor can those from pass to us. Father, would send him to the house, for I have five brothers, them, unless they also. And Abraham said to him, It's in the prophets, let them hear God's word. And he said, No, Father Abraham, if they will repent. If they do not hear Moses, will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead? Speaking of rising from the dead. So it's and it's virtuous to be poor. 
and make you to be a blessing. So you, all the families in the earth should be blessed. Like God finds poverty in and of or being rich in and of itself as being evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil, but not money itself. So what's the crime here? Like, what's the, what's the issue? What is the pattern of Jesus, for that matter, with regards to these things? He's the pattern. Or the, the cornerstone, one that we pattern ourselves after, wasn't rich, but neither was he poor. In a place of earthly weakness, in the sense of there was no clear way that his provision would come, it did seem to come. He wasn't starving. He apparently had places to sleep and, and eat and, and was clothed. And you follow what I'm saying? So, what again is the crime that we're talking about here? The crime, the issue here, is that one should live to help others and to take what you have to help the needs. Whatever I have that another doesn't, that my heart should be to help others rather than the pursuit of consuming for myself. That was the issue. So driving it home for us here in our society, I would say, some of you could say, well, I'm going to leave Stahelin Avenue. I'm going to drive back to my place later, and there's probably going to be a beggar at one of the traffic lights. And so I need to, like, give you know, something to that beggar. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't, but can I be honest with you? There is so much resource in the city of Detroit that many of us in ignorance, because we actually don't know a lot of the homeless people personally, Minda and I, Mickey and I, we've had the privilege of meeting some of them and having something of relationship with them. They're, they're, they're inundated with potential resource if they need to. Can I also be maybe jaded with you and say, there's a, um, a business of begging. And not every beggar is a legit. That I don't believe what I'm saying is that's the point of the scripture. Of course, there are legitimate beggars and so on and so forth. My conversation with the Lord while reading the scripture was, Lord, what does this mean? Because I started thinking, okay, well, we as a church, we need to start setting up something, some kind of an NGO or uh, NGO, uh, what do you, nonprofit, and um, and we need to like. Why would we? Do, maybe we, the better thing is we should go partner with another pre-existing nonprofit to fulfill the the requirement of the scripture. I want to do what the Word of God is saying, and and just something didn't settle with my heart quite right. I said, Lord, how do I fulfill this? And He said, Lazarus was at the rich man's gate. In other words, it's the needs of the people, whether they're rich or poor, right in front of your daily rhythms your daily lives. You don't need to go out there and find the poor. And it's not even necessarily the economically poor in the first place. It's any human need that is right in front of you to live out of the context of I'm here to give, to sow what I have to help others, wherever that may be in my own context. A disciple of Jesus is seeking to help and it starts with those right within regular proximity of themselves. So I've got a couple questions for us. Firstly, what might this mean to how we budget or spend our money? If I'm literally, as is taught here, living, I'm seeking. I'm seeking to give. I'm not, instead of seeking to consume, I'm seeking to give. I'm, in a sense, making money so that I can help. How might that change the way I budget or spend my money? Another question. What might this mean to how I use my time? How many of us perhaps in route to our Christian meeting pass by the beat up person on the side of the road and like the chief priest keep moving because I've got important God things to do. Referring to the Good Samaritan story. Time. How, how, how might this change the way that we use our time? Being sensitive to the needs of the people around us. Thirdly, what might this mean to how we use our resources? I would say in, in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, we see something of a picture of what the culture 
of those who actually live in what we're talking about, what it looks like. You don't have to turn with me there, but can I read this to you quickly? Acts 2.44, now all who believed were together and had all things in common. And you may say, yeah, but that's like, you know, context, that's like society, that's like culture, that's first century. You know, we've got all these like high and lofty ways of like explaining away these things. No, no. In heaven, you don't actually own anything. Everything you have is given to you for serving. And this is simply a picture of heaven on earth. No one, it says, what does it say? All together had all things in common, and they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. That's the issue there, need. Where's their need? And in this case, the need was in proximity to the other believers because they were dwelling together. They were the church. They were the family. And that's the first rung of, of serving other humans. If you go over to Acts chapter 4, verse 32, same church. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. That's radical, right? It's actually very normal. <laughs> it's actually very normal. This is radical to us in our fallen world. It was not so in the beginning. And so a comment that I would like to say to us is that as we move in this season into a new venue, as we move with Jesus in this season that he has his church in, let's reposition our hearts to relieve the needs of those right in front of me. Whether it's an emotional need, whether it's a physical need, to be mindful and caring about those at our gate, so to speak. And let us all consider that all that we have is given for that purpose. I don't know if I can, as we move with Jesus into a new venue, as we move into this new venue, and in, with Jesus into this new season that he has his church in, let us all seek to help and to relieve the needs of the people right in front of us, the people that are at our gate, so to speak. And let us consider everything that we have as being given to us for that purpose. I'm speaking as one who's challenged with you in this. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to speak down. I'm saying this is the word of God. Let us all conform to it rather than us trying to conform it to us. And I believe that this is what he's looking for in the church that he will return to. And so thirdly and lastly, and I think perhaps this morning even most importantly, I think what I just said is kind of the heartbeat behind what we're about to get into but the next thing is, is to be determined and resourceful in the Great Commission. Um, I want to humbly say and vault, very honestly say that as I've considered, this is how I feel as the one who's been given the humble privilege of, of, of leading the church, of having the of being, having the, the leadership responsibility and being accountable um, for the leadership of the church. This is how I feel right now. I can't lead any further than what we're about to talk about. This is kind of it. Like there's nowhere else to go. It's almost like the, the, the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness. There was the Jordan River. And there was the promised land with giants on the other side. They had no other thing to do once they got to that Jordan River. They could have said, God, I want to, let's do another lesson. Maybe like, let's, uh, you want to feed us manna again or something? Or, well, they was already feeding us manna, but some, some, there was no other lesson. The only next step was put your feet in the Jordan River and walk across. And I believe that being determined and using our resource for the Great Commission is the only next thing that we have. We've got plenty to see after we start doing that on a greater level. Plenty of experiences and, and journeys and exciting adventures with Jesus on the other side of Jordan. But there's no other thing left to do on this side of Jordan. And so... 
Before I even get into this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to revisit a little thing that we did a couple years ago. Some of you may remember the funnel. The funnel. Because I am a, a real estate agent, licensed realtor, and I believe that every bit as much as those in the sales, any kind of sales industry, especially real estate uh, sales, you have, in your, you have what's known as the lead generation funnel, the lead funnel. Um, and there is an incredible parallel to the purpose of Jesus uh, and his funnel, if you will. He has a, he, Jesus' ministry has a funnel as well. And so let me give you a brief kind of study on real estate lead generation funnel. Fun, right, Bob? So... Uh, out of this funnel, and you'll notice this is much wider than this is, right? Uh, what This is the goal here. Liquid goes into a funnel, and it comes out here. Obviously, this is the goal. You want to take something that's kind of wide out here, and you want something very specific coming out of here. In real estate, what is what do you want coming out of your lead generation funnel? You want to close transactions with, with buyers or sellers who are, who are satisfied clients so much so that they want to begin referring you to others and repeating, use you again whenever they need to. You've, you've got to impress them. You've got to satisfy them to the point that they, you don't just close the transaction. The goal is that you want them referring other people to you. Okay? Do you start there? There's a process to get there, let me tell you. What happens right before that process, maybe this part of the, of the funnel, is a thing that we in the industry we call contract to close. That means you get this client under contract. If they're buying a house, putting an offer on a house that's accepted by a seller, you're under contract. You're in contract to close. If you're, if you're representing them as the seller, you find a buyer, they put an offer, your seller accepts it, you're under contract. Contract to close on the deal. You following? And there's all sorts of things that you have to do in there to do it well and to make sure that they love you when they get to the closing table and say, oh, Paul, you're great. I want to refer you to my friends. Contract to close brings satisfied clients who are referring them, uh, other, their friends and their family to you. What happens before contract to close? You need at the, see this little connecting point between this part of the funnel and this larger part of the funnel There's where it connects right there? That would be where you, they actually become your client. You're never going to get them under contract if they're not first your client. And you're certainly not going to close a transaction unless they're first your client. You have to have a conversation with them where they sit down and discuss agency with them and they sign an agreement and choose you to be authorized as the realtor. Does that make sense? And then it's much wider here, right? Above there. Why is that? Because there's a whole bunch of people in this funnel only some of them will reach this point right here and actually make you their agent. Only some of those will actually get under contract and only some of those will actually become satisfied clients who are referring other people to you. What's going on right here? This is called lead follow-up. This is where you're, I have a system every week. I'm following up with people that I've had conversations with. People who know me, I've had conversations with them about real estate. They know me as that and that there's a likelihood of them needing to buy or sell in something of the next six to 12 months, and I'm just following up with them. I'm, the whole goal of this is to stay top of mind. You, wanna, you want it to be, when they're ready to sign with a realtor, you want to be their obvious choice because you've been caring for them, conversing with them, sending them value-adding information, that kind of thing. Does that make sense? The whole thing, how do you even get people into this funnel? If they're... the they have to have a conversation with you or see you on an advertisement or something and associate you as a potential realtor that they would want to use. How does that happen? You have to strike up conversations mostly with people you've never met before. Mostly. People you've never met. That is the widest part of the, the mouth of this funnel is people who don't yet know finding out about you so that they, if they are interested in buying or selling in the near future, you can, you can put them into this lead follow-up thing and you're following up and, and building a relationship and a rapport with them. Does that make sense? If I want satisfied clients who are referring others to me, the most important thing that I can be doing 
is making sure that there are people on a regular basis coming into this, this lead follow-up. They become a lead. They become a contact that I'm following up with. I've got to meet people. I've got to talk to people. I've got to put myself out there. Putting myself out there, you may say, well, Paul, you've got such confidence and you're, such, you're probably such an extrovert. I could never do that. It's along the lines of going to the dentist. I'd say maybe, you know, I've never actually had a tooth pulled, but, I, well, other than wisdom teeth, it's in that category, minus the, the, the drugs, which were not a problem, actually, but <laughs> the nitrogen, whatever, nitrous oxide or something. Anyways, I, I digress. <laughs> My point is that, in fact, Jesus, and I, I don't mean to to sound, um, uh, I don't mean to, to sound irreverent by comparing Jesus to something like a sales thing. Um, but it, there is, it, it, sales is not evil, by the way. You know that. Doing something selfishly is evil. Manipulating people to get them to do something that's for your own benefit, that's evil. Sales in and of itself can be a great service to people, especially if you're providing a great service to people. In the same way, Jesus, the, what, what, the same God who created the earth that has this thing called sales and this lead funnel, which is a thing that is a real thing, uh, the, the, the ministry of Jesus has a very similar thing. What is coming out of the funnel of the, of the ministry of Jesus? It is disciples who are being transformed through the God that now dwells inside of them and who are activated into laboring in the harvest. When I say laboring in the harvest, I don't just mean, I don't mean to belittle this, I don't mean activated in setting up on Sunday morning. I don't even mean activated, with all due respect, playing cajon or something. I mean activated in those out there. That is the goal of Jesus. How can I say that with confidence? Unequivocally, that is what we see in the Gospels. He had this ministry to the multitudes, the large groups, but only some of them would add, enter into the discipleship chamber. And ultimately, the goal at the end of Jesus' life clearly, clearly, was to hand a baton to them and say, now you go do it. Clearly. That is the goal of Jesus, is to bring disciples who are being transformed and who are activated in reaching the harvest. What happens right before that? Well, in real estate, it's contract to close. In the ministry of Jesus, it's that people are being discipled. Whether that's experiencing somebody taking you under their wing and pouring into you one-on-one, -on -one, or it's in the context of the church where just like what you and I are doing right now, we're hearing the word, we're having conversations with people. Any and all of that, that people are being discipled. They are being taught as it says in Matthew chapter 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to walk in or observe everything that I have commanded you. That's what discipleship is, that they're taught by other Christians how to walk in what those Christians have learned from Jesus. You follow? Disciples who are being transformed and activated in making disciples or reaching the harvest, those people need to first be discipled themselves, obviously, what happens at the point of even entering into this chamber? How does that happen? That disciple once needed to have made a decision to place their faith in Jesus. In other words, there, there has to be a, a point at which they are exposed to the, to the articulated gospel. You and I may love the concept that we have disciples who are tr being transformed and being activated in the harvest. That sounds awesome, right? The reality is it will never happen unless people hear the gospel. And it begs the question, how many people have heard the gospel through the people in this room over the past 12 months? How much presentation of the gospel has there been? It's not a condemning thing. It's a reality. And I'm, again, I'm not saying this as like speaking down. I'm saying this to all of us, to me included. How many people have heard the gospel Jesus didn't say, yeah, but it wasn't the time yet. It wasn't, I was just waiting on the Lord. No, no, no. As soon as he was baptized by the Holy Spirit, he was taking definitive 
actionable steps to make sure the gospel of the kingdom was being articulated. So it is with all who take the baton. So they need to be discipled to do that. They need to become a disciple by virtue of placing their faith in Jesus. You'll notice that it becomes wider up here, right? Well, in real estate, that's lead follow-up. I would say this is the people that the church are building into and forming bridges of trust and reaching out to in their lives. The question would, would be how, in the same way that there are realtors whose lives on a daily basis, me being one of them, are built around a model of how I use my time to make sure I'm active in lead follow-up. It can be great that I meet somebody out there and I have a great discussion about them as, as, as a realtor and we make a great rapport, but if they never hear me for the next couple months, guess what? When it comes time to sell their house, they're probably going to forget all about me. I think he gave me his business card or something and they're not going to remember. I've got to, I've got to follow up with them. The church in the same way needs to be taking the initiative to reach out and follow up with people with a purpose, building rapport, trust, love, bridge of trust so that one day this can happen. They hear the gospel. And when they hear the gospel, it's not some cold call. It's from a person that they've grown to trust. Maybe by this time, Maybe, maybe during this phase, they've started coming to church with you. And it's at church the preacher shares the gospel. Maybe, as I've heard quite often, in fact, I've met a guy in Chicago at Church of Restoration. Uh, he's part of the, he, uh, the uh, Chicago Fire Department. And uh, he just got saved last year. I said, how'd you get saved? He said, well, you know, this other guy in the church, we were, he's also a fireman. And we were sitting, we were drinking some whiskey and, and, uh, or, or brandy or something like that. And... And uh, he started sharing with me about Jesus. I thought, that's, that's kind of a refreshing story. <laughs> they, they, so here's, here's the gospel being shared across a bridge of trust. They weren't getting hammered, by the way, just to make sure we're all comfortable. They weren't getting sloshed. They were just drinking, and, and, and the gospel was shared, and he gave his life to Jesus. And now he's a disciple. The dude is like, teach me, teach me. Um, you know, so anyways, how does that happen? That dude in Church of Restoration, or Restoration Chicago, he, he was following up with his friend who was not a believer, right? Building friendship. They were sharing a drink together that suggests that they spend time together. Like there's some intentionality. And what happens up here? Just like we need, in, the, in real estate, there's, these are the people that you've never met. We need to meet them and find the people who are, have reasonably are going to be looking to buy or sell in the next 6 to 12 months. That's who we're looking for. We need to meet them so that they know about us, so that we can get their contact information and start following up with them. In the same way, the church needs to be finding people of peace. That literally is what Jesus told, not the 12, the 70, the ordinary you and me's to go do. Find people of peace. People who you encounter, who know something about what you're, what you're about, and who, and who receive you. You share a good rapport with them. That becomes the bridge of trust upon which the things of the kingdom can, can cross over. I would say the church in this season, the number one thing, it, just like in real estate, I have learned the hard way. As much as you want to serve here and just, you know, you all focus all of your energy because it's easy and it's, it's the least stretching to just focus on helping the transaction get to the closing table. You got to do that and you got to do it well because if you don't do it well, they're not going to be satisfied when, when you close the transaction. They're going to be like, okay, yeah, we closed, but you are, we're an idiot the whole way. You got to do it well, but for most realtors, you can't hide behind, oh, I'm too busy to do lead generation. I've got to serve this client. No, 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 no. You don't do this, you don't eat. You don't find leads, you don't eat. The church needs to be at least as much committed to this, finding people of peace, going, going, go, therefore, and make disciples. He didn't say, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me, make disciples, therefore. He said, go and make disciples. In other words, the making disciples doesn't, doesn't even happen unless you first go 
And what does go mean? It means to leave where you are. It actually has a picture of what you're doing right now. You're sitting. The actual idea of that word go is that you get up from sedentary position and go towards a definitive uh, target. What is the target? Disciples who are being transformed, who are uh, now activated and going and doing what you've done. How do we do that? You disciple them. How do you do that? You bring them to a point, play in a few, place of hearing the gospel so that they can become a disciple of Jesus. How do you do that? You follow up with them. You build relationship with them. You, you reach out to them. You do, intentionally do something. How do, you do, how do you have people that you're doing that with? You go intentionally and meet people to find people at peace. Am I making sense? All this to say, if you look with me in Luke chapter 16, verse 1, he said to his disciples, there was a rich, a certain rich man who had a steward. If you don't know what a steward is, it's somebody that has, like a manager. It's somebody who has been appointed to take care of the goods or the, the business of somebody else. There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man, the steward, was wasting his goods. And so he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no, excuse me, no longer be steward. And then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses." And so he called, what? It is my funnel, literally. That is, that is actually a lead coming in. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. Listen to this. So he said, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. That's not ethical, by the way. This is not an ethical exercise. I know that these are let, words are read and it says that Jesus said them. Let me be blunt with you. This is not good what this guy's doing. And then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said, take your bill and write 80. And now listen to this. And so the master commended the unjust steward. Because he had dealt shrewdly, and that word shrewdly really means wisely or prudently. He was forward-thinking. He was taking action to accomplish something that needed to be accomplished. He was acting shrewdly for the sons of this world. Can I suggest the sons of this world would include licensed realtors who have a lead generation funnel? The sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light the church. What a shame it is that Jesus looks upon the earth and sees realtors who are more committed to simply making satisfied clients who are referring other people than the church of Jesus Christ. Those who have encountered God and the glory of God and the promises of God are committed to sharing that with a lost and dying world. That is a reality check for us. My time in Chicago with the NCMI, whatever it is, regional training time, if it said anything, it says that this emphasis that we've had on reaching out, reaching out, reaching out, people of peace, reaching out. I mean, I almost feel like embarrassed about how much of an emphasis that we've, we've done. And then I go to Chicago and I realize, no, 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 this is what God's doing in his church. And we can't move any more in our wilderness without crossing that Jordan. There's nothing left to do in this previous season. The promised land, the things that he has spoken are on that side of obedience of definitively saying, I am living to go. That is what Jesus has given us to do. So can I just ask a couple questions here for us to reflect and to kind of digest and then we'll be done. What was the unjust steward accused of? He was not doing his job. What was the unjust steward commended for? He was commended, not because he did something ethical, he was commended that he was determined to get a job done by any means necessary. If we're talking about the sons of light and the sons 
of this world, what is the job of the sons of light? It's the Great Commission. What's Jesus saying here? The sons of light who have been given a commission by God himself need to have that kind of attitude. That I will, that I, I, that almost as though my life depends upon it. I've got to get creative, think outside of the box, and do whatever it takes to make sure that there are people coming into this funnel and that I am, I am following up with these people. I am reaching out. I'm not waiting for the Holy Spirit to send people to me. Jesus did not say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Wait until I send by the Holy Spirit people for you to disciple. He said, go. <laughs> you... So, or wait for the next season or whatever the, the case is. The next season will be found when we put our feet in the Jordan River and start walking across into a promised land to face giants. That's how it works. So what was the unjust steward commended for? He made sure by any means that something got done. What is the, the job of the sons of light? I know I'm repeating myself, but let's just go through it. It's making disciples who will make disciples. Making disciples who will be transformed uh, by, by God and will be activated into making other disciples. What must therefore we be shrewd about? I would say it's lead generation. It's finding people of peace. Going, meeting with a, with the heart of, uh, like we talked about earlier, relieving people's needs, meeting people's needs, being mindful of what they are, loving people, caring about them, building that relationship of trust that by any means they can find Jesus, if through us. So maybe a, a question to ask ourselves, and, and could we be honest? I want to be honest about my own answer to this question. Does my life demonstrate that searching for people of peace, does my life demonstrate searching for people of peace as though my life depended upon it? That seems to be the idea of this parable that we read. Another thing to ask maybe is, if not, then what do I need to do differently to be, as Jesus said, shrewd, with the Great Commission. What does that look like? Here's this steward, unjust steward, doing something as crazy and wrong as lowering what people owed him with no authorization to do that, but just to do something to make sure that his needs were taken care of. Our, our objective is to make sure that there are people who are encountered Jesus and are transformed and who are activated into doing how, what, how, if we, if, if our life depended upon that, what would that look like? What kind of actions would that take? And I just want to end with this last thought. Uh, as we in real estate, I would, I would, uh, I would guess that, um, the most effective, means of lead generation as a realtor is what we call sphere of influence. It's the people that you know. Anyone from the person who bags your groceries or maybe changes your radiator uh, to fixes your radiator to um, your neighbor, if it's anyone that you know, your sphere of influence, talking to those people tends to be the most effective way of lead generation where you're actually going to, either they're gonna refer somebody to you or, um, I mean, even Mickey. Uh, I've had conversations with Mickey. Mickey's, you know, he actually referred one of his friends, and we closed the deal together. Um, that tends to be the most effective. Why? Because there's already some kind of a familiarity with you. Sphere of influence, that tends to be the most effective. What might that mean for us? Sphere of influence. Sphere of influence for a realtor you got a whole bunch of people who know you, even if it's just bagging your groceries. They know you, but they don't know that you're a realtor until you open up your mouth and say something. And I don't mean be being weird, right? You know, there's ways of doing it that's natural and, and servant-orientated. Uh, you're looking for people that you can help, you know, who legitimately need the help that you can provide. It's strike up a conversation. What I'm saying is in real estate, it's... it's People know you, but they don't enter your lead funnel until you strike up a conversation.
In the same way for the disciple, you've got people that know you, but they're not going to enter into this and move definitively, hopefully, towards this moment of making a decision for Jesus until we open up our mouths and do something definitive like, hey, we're going to have a party for the neighborhood over at our house like we're doing this upcoming Wednesday. Come on over and we're building a relationship with them and we're going to let them know inevitably that, hey, there's this church down here and we're going to be North Rosedale Park. You follow what I'm saying? Or like what the Lloyds are doing, having people in their home um, with Elsie and Sandra and, and so on and so forth. That kind of definitive, intentional thing is how you take people that you know into actually mo- helping them along the way of finding Jesus, which is the most important thing. Good? Yeah. Let's pray. And let's please not just, you know, pray for the sake of praying. I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to encourage us to sincerely ask the Lord, even right now, um, to give us ideas, to answer the all-important question of, Lord, what do I need to do? And can I warn you, even before you do that, that you very well may not hear an answer? Because largely, the answer is go, usually. In other words, just go do something. You know, if you mess up, it's okay. But it would be better for the stone to be rolling. God can use a rolling stone, but moss just grows on one that's just sitting there. And it would be much better for us just to be going, active, mobile. So the Holy Spirit can and wants to, I believe, lead us and give us strategy, give us ideas. But I don't think those ideas come to the one who's waiting for the ideas to come before you go. You first have to choose to go. Then he will begin to lead you. That's been my experience.